You're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor, and this week I am joined by... Brendan Sinclair. And Rebecca Valentine. We're going to start with the negative news. We're going to build more positively or perhaps more analytically throughout the episode because, once again, uh, toxic work cultures are a topic of this week. It's one of those weeks where separate things happen all together and, and it becomes just kind of a, a, a trend, as it were. So there were three companies that made headlines this week along these lines and these are obviously very broad issues they can't really they shouldn't really be lumped into one but it's it's perhaps the best way to at least start the discussion razor was it most recently in the news last night i believe in terms of at the time of recording a kotaku report came out saying that former employees said ceo min liang tan yelled through objects made threats demanded unreasonable overtime and was verbally abusive tan has denied these claims in part saying that he did not throw objects at his employees or threaten violence towards them but has thrown products to the floor or on the wall no to the wall or on the floor when he was dissatisfied with them uh, he said I have made statements to the effect of don't make me punch you in the face or I'll, or I'll send my killer robots after you but those statements have all been figurative or in jest meanwhile in France Quantic Dream has been ordered to pay 5,000 euros uh, as a fine plus 2,000 euros in costs to a former employee after a photoshopped image of them doing a Nazi salute was shared in the office uh, the courts added that the images were homophobic misogynist racist or sim- simply profoundly vulgar um, and the developer was accused of having let them spread for years without doing anything. This actually kind of follows on reports from January tw- 2018 when there were loads of reports about harassment, discrimination, um, and a- around 600 offensive photoshopped images of employees that were doing the rounds in the office. Finally, Riot Games. Uh, this is an update on a previously reported uh, preliminary settlement in a gender discrimination suit between Riot Games and multiple former women employees. Uh, this is going to see Riot pay out $10 million in total. $10 million is going to be split between women employed by Riot between November 2014 and the date that the settlement was finalised, with the amounts from the total awarded based on length of employment and whether or not employees were full-time. This lawsuit was filed over a year ago by multiple ex-employees who alleged that the company harboured a bro culture of gender discrimination, harassment and sexism that has been dismissed by management for years. And that is a trio of horrible ways to start a podcast. God, like, like where do you even begin? It's, yeah... Um, it's been it's been a week. It's also been a year, I feel like, for finding out that people in power in this industry are sometimes really, really not great. Um, and w- with the riot with the riot case, it's I, th- I think the riot games issue is both heartening but also frustrating. It's it's heartening in the sense that you know, they reach the settlement, they're having to pay out this money, they're, they're having to suffer some consequence for the things that, you know, they, they did to you know, discriminate against women. Um, they say that they're trying to do better. But at the same time, it's it's 10 million, it's spread out around around 1000 former employees with you know differing amounts. And my understanding, um, after the, after I wrote that article, is that some of the, the women who brought the suit to court originally um, are not going to see any of that payout, or at least some of them aren't, um, for, ver- for various legal really? reasons. I'd have to, I'd have to dig up uh, what that was from. But yeah, it's it feels simultaneously good that, that something got done. It also feels frustrating that it, it, it wasn't more. Um, and, and also, they, you know, Riot's been talking for months about how they're improving their culture internally, but a lot of their statements have been kind of fuzzy or vague or feel good 
company kind of statements like, oh, yeah, we're working really hard to listen to all of our employees. But it's it's really hard if you don't have concrete, you know, people who work there coming out and saying, yeah, they've done X, Y and Z and things are a lot better now. I, I think the issue, part of the issue is that like instigating that change, making real change to those kind of systemic issues within your workplace and, and rooting out or clamping down on that toxicity to the point where it is no longer the norm. That is a slow process. It's only been a year and a half since that first riot, uh, that riot expert say first came out. So 18 months isn't quite enough time to change that. Unfortunately, legal processes that, that are actually punishing them are also really slow. So as long as it's taking to kind of work on that behind the scenes, there's still these regular reminders of this is how bad it got because the lawsuits are taking that long. Yeah, well, there's also like Riot spent years hiring for culture fit. And we have a better understanding of what that culture was now. So you kind of think that, you got to understand that like they are staffed top to bottom with people who were either okay with that culture or who thrived in it and agreed with it and would like to perpetuate it. And to change something like that is, I don't know, it's like turning the Titanic, but everyone on, on board is kind of turning the wheel in the opposite direction at the same time. So, like, without without kind of more buy-in top to bottom, I'm not sure how something like that gets better. And with, with you know, yes, it's it's good that some of the some of the women who were uh, suffering in that culture are now being compensated somewhat uh, for what they went through. It's it's still such a drop in the bucket. For, for Riot, and I'm sure that they are just happy to have the you know uncertainty of that court case behind them and are more than happy to, to part with that much money just to kind of like, oh, well, now we can close the chapter on, turn the page on that chapter, and, and we're good now, right? Um, I don't, so I don't mean to change the subject too much, but um, I, I didn't, I wasn't around when the Quantic Dream story came out. Um, I think I think Marie wrote that up for us. Do you know, is that connected to the allegations, I think, early last year um, of a whole bunch of other stuff? Like, there's a whole thing with yeah. Lamont so, and... Yeah, I appreciate I was kind of rattling through it quite quickly at the start, but yeah, this is this is a direct follow-up to um, all the report that came out in Le Monde, Mediapart, Canard, PC, like the the reports of the an atmosphere of harassment and discrimination, and and as I said earlier, like kind of around six hundred offensive photoshopped images of employees that were doing the round of the office. So this is again, this is what I mean. Like that that report was almost two years ago. So this is just and one guy, they are but, the, but this is just one person. Yeah, this is one employee. Okay, but there yes. were a whole bunch of other allegations that we still haven't seen dealt with. Okay. Yes, so we could and should hopefully see more more punishment dealt out in the near future. Um, yeah, it's 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 a difficult one because once you've got if you've built up a culture and it seems the norm to those inside, it's only when when newer people come in and. So, you know, this is not right. Why on earth has this been allowed so long? It's only that then that it all comes out. You've got years of, of that culture being you know, embedded, embedded in 
to deal with. And, and as we keep on saying, like that's that's not a quick fix. That's not an easy. I was talking to someone. It wasn't um, it wasn't a games related person. It was it was someone in a different industry. Um, was talking about how they they're increasingly conscious they have a, a very white team. Um, and obviously, you know, the need for diversity to not 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 just you know to tick boxes, but the genuine benefits of having a diverse team. They want to push towards that, but the trouble is they can't fire anyone because no one has done anything wrong that warrants being fired, and you can't kind of urge people to leave in order to bring in that diversity. So your your options are limited in terms of like you can recognise the problem, you can hold your hands up and say yes, we've had a problem, we're going to work on it. But in terms of fixing it, I'm not making excuses for these three companies at all. But fixing it really isn't an easy easy fix. I think what you were saying about what you and Brenna were both saying about culture being ingrained too. And again, just trying to tie these three stories together. Um, the razor story, I, I thought th- there were a lot of pretty, pretty just nightmarish quotes in that story from Kotaku. Like I highly recommend going out and reading the whole thing if you haven't already. Um, but there was a quote from a former employee in there that just, oh, gosh, it really stung. Um, I definitely had a lot of good opportunities at Razor. In the end, it was positive, but there were a lot of challenges. I likened working at Razor to Stockholm Syndrome. You bonded with the people you worked with. There's nowhere else I've been at where you bonded like that. But we all bonded over fear of what management was going to do with us. The reason for the bonding was survival. Like that's another example of even if you're not happy with the culture, even if you're in it and you know that there's something off, you still sort of kind of perpetuate it because you need the job like you can't just can't just quit this is not this is not an industry where it's easy for people especially you know at, at lower I, I guess like lower level like not management level or whatever to just sort of you know quit and find something immediately you don't want to leave your uh your co-workers in the lurch you know you get affinity for these people and then all of a sudden it's like well if i leave someone's got to do my work so it's going to fall on them and and we're all already you know the the thing with the razor that, that that really gets me is is just like we we have such hero worship for like tech CEOs or you know visionary developers or whatever we and we don't seem to care that you know they're they're just jerks a lot of the time like the, this is something that we actually kind of as a society lionize in some ways like you look at any kind of biography of steve jobs and it talks about you know how the way he treated his his employees and and you, you strip it away and it's like yeah it's just it's just some guy being a jerk and you can you can kind of phrase it as he's so dedicated to fulfilling his vision and his standards are so high and he demands the best and brings it out of everyone that he works with. You can kind of do that as much as you want, but the the end result is that this person is choosing to prioritize their their job and their work over not only their own health or their 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 own well being but above, you know, their their employees, their 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 coworkers, they they choose. You know, it's fine. It's fine to berate and belittle and and make these people's lives less happy. If if I can create a better product at the end, and I just I hate that mentality, and and I see it in in so many places. Where where people just kind of hold up the 
an ends justify the means approach to to whatever it is that they're doing. When if you look at it, it's like, no, this is this is just your job. You know, this isn't this isn't your life. It's it's your job, and you're you're hurting these other people's actual lives and and their well being and who they are in order to do your job better. And that feels like a really selfish trade off to me. I mean, we've all like collectively decided that it's worth it, right? Like, like even the people who were interviewed at Razor, like a lot of them were talking about, you know, we, we hated this. This was terrible. Also, we were promised a big payout at the end. And so we stuck around or, you know, this, this job was really good for us to get our foot in the door in the industry. And it led to a bunch of opportunities later. Um, outside of that, because you know, I, I don't, I'm not and don't want to in any way blame employees for management's really bad behavior because that is not their fault. Um, but then like outside of that too, like people are going to, people keep buying razor products like, like that. It was, it did, it rewarded him to have, to have that mentality and to treat people like that. He, he got the payout. Like the company went public. They, razor is the gaming peripheral brand. Uh, Riot Games, um, is, you know, ridiculous. They actually, we wanted to throw this in here and mention they, uh, started a new publishing label this week. And now they're going to start working with outside studios to develop more games in the League of Legends universe. So they're they're just like continuing to grow and continuing to do you know more and more things. And if that ends up being on the backs of people who are hurting in the workplace um, for you know due to unreasonable conditions, then that's just that's just the cost of it. And it's just going to keep going. One of the things like we found out this year. So one more thing about the razor thing that I, I thought was just grimly hilarious. Um, I, th- I think it was on the the issue of making people work, you know, ridiculous hours. Uh, the Razor response was, I think, uh, it started like many tech startups. We, you know, and Razor has been around for twenty years now. Yeah. Like, you are not a startup. <laughs> No, not you even are close. <laughs> an established company, and you can't use like, "Oh, we're new" as as an excuse to just run people ragged and drive them into the ground. You want to position yourself as a tech startup, not because it's actually what you are, but just because people cut them more slack. It's like, ah, oh, it's it's just some crazy, passionate small group of kids here, and they're. They're doing it for the love of whatever, and they're trying to change the world. That whole, honestly, the whole Kotaku article, there are a lot of really just bizarre responses from both Tan and Razor uh, representatives, like where there'll be an allegation and they'll say, well, yeah, we did kind of do that, but it wasn't really that bad. But no, it's still that bad. It's a really, really, the article is incredibly well written. It's Cecilia D'Anastasio over at Kotaku. Um, She just left for Wired. so, but really, really good reporting on some really, really heinous stuff. Uh, so many people have just sort of internalized all of this, all of this part of the the culture that like they look at it and it's like, yeah, but it's not really that bad. It wasn't like that. It was, it was like, but in a fun way. It's okay to say, do this or I'll punch you in the face if I'm just joking. You're their boss! You can't say that.
Elsewhere in the news this week, uh, Switch has got an official release date for China. It's going to be released in mainland China on Tuesday, December the 10th. It's going to cost roughly $300. comes with a uh, version of New Super Mario Bros. U Deluxe and a one-year warranty. Um, our contributing editor, Rob Farhi, actually wrote a column on this. Um, a, a lot of investors are getting very excited about Nintendo launching in China and the fact that consoles are now finally allowed in China. The theory is that Nintendo has been doing so well this year, uh, particularly with the Switch, but even in the, in the mobile space, it, its mobile strategy is starting to pay off. Um, not quite as much as investors thought, but it's still starting to pay off. So there's a lot of excitement around Switch r- arriving in um, China. Uh, Rob Farhi, however... Uh, suggested that this is likely to still be a hell of an uphill struggle. So, a hell of an upstill, a hell of an uphill struggle for Nintendo, even given uh, ten cents backing, because console gaming is nowhere in China. The market is primarily mobile focused, and everything that isn't mobile is PC. He uh, continued that online gaming, which is far from being Nintendo's forte, and that's putting it mildly, um, is the order of the day. PlayStation and Xbox are already in this market, and if you're thinking that you very rarely hear anything about that, that's a pretty. there's a pretty good reason for that silence. Their entire slice of the gaming market is basically a rounding error on top of the mobile and online revenues. Nintendo's answer um, to this is quite interesting. They The way they've been marketing the console is to push it forward as a positive social and inclusive activity um, rather than, you know, like playing on mobile phones is, is isolating. Obviously, there's all this stuff in China about, you know, um, time limits for minors and various different ways to try and cut down on, like, smartphone addiction or mobile addiction. And Nintendo are marketing this as, like, this is a family activity. This is something you can play together, which, to be fair, is one of both Nintendo's strengths and the strength of the Switch. Um but yeah, I mean, what do you guys think of the, the, the console's chances in I think China? it definitely has maybe a better shot than anything, any other console on its face, just because of the fact that it is a, it's also a portable console. Um, I think just the design of it is maybe more appealing um, in a market that hasn't had, you know, a lot of traditional box consoles sitting around um, where mobile is already very popular. So if, if anything has a shot, it probably is the Switch. I'm not too optimistic. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it it is the only place for people to play Nintendo's first party games, and that's been that's been enough to carry uh, Nintendo consoles here and there in a number of places. Um, but yeah, I just I, I don't know if if you can take a um, such a a massive gaming culture that is oriented around one particular type of gaming, one particular type of experience, often a free-to-play one at that, and then sort of convert them to, you know, traditional premium console gaming in in any kind of uh, large numbers. Uh, That's definitely going to be a major issue. As you you say, the market is dominated by free-to-play games. Um, I believe I read that the, the Switch games in China are going to cost approximately $42 each. So, all right, if you buy the Switch, you'll get your copy of Mario with it. But if you want any other it's game, only a it's demo. $42 a pop. It's yeah. only a demo. I thought it was the full version. Oh, apologies. I thought it was the full version. Um, the, that was, a, okay, that was well, an update after I think you wrote the story. I updated your story. That right, came that out makes later. sense. But yeah, it's only a demo. Thank you very much. But well, that's even worse. <laughs> like, if for, 
you get you get half a game or a quarter of a game, and then it's forty two dollars a pop for for each individual title. Like, and there's there's about twenty or so that are on the way, and it's a mix of like first party Nintendo stuff, but also like um, third party. So there's Ubisoft stuff in there. There's um, Just Dance. There's an exclusive Rabbids Party game. Mario and Sonic from Sega's there. Bandai Namco, Konami. They're working on games. Can we pause so, on the Rabbids yeah, like Party said, it's, game? It's a, I. I, are rabbits popular in China? What? Rabbits are, are huge really? in China. Rabbits are so I Yeah, genuine right. Tangent. I went to Singapore, uh not Singapore, that Singapore's not China. Well I did go to Singapore, but shortly shortly after Singapore, I then went to Shanghai with Ubisoft on a trip about two years ago. And they were announcing a bunch of like different games at China Joy, like they've got Assassin's Creed characters into some Chinese mobile game. But one of the things that was showing off was a VR Rabbids experience that was going to be installed in like um, shopping malls and cinemas and stuff where it is basically like a Rabbids roller coaster and you sit in it and it rumbles as it, you know, the VR makes it look like they, they love the oh, Rabbids over well, there. Well, that makes sense then. Okay. I'm still a Rabbids defender over here, it has to be said. I recognize I'm in the minority. No, I love that Rabbids <laughs> party game. Send it over here too. <laughs> We'll see. We'll, we'll we'll see if there's enough of a market for Ubisoft to do that. But yeah, but the, the point is like they they they're trying to to build up a library over there. There's a ton of indie games are coming out there, and Tencent obviously is working with local Chinese developers to put their con- their games onto Switch. But yeah, as Brendan says, like it's it's still creating that whole new consumer mindset of buying premium games and buying games individually and not you know paying in app purchases here and there, but actually purchasing a game up front that's that's a different different way of, of gaming whether or not it takes off we'll see but i, I, I don't know I, I quietly hope it it has a good chance like i said like the fact that it's it's that hybrid between mobile and home console that suggests it might do better than say playstation or xbox or even any of the old um iq distributed uh, unofficial Nintendo consoles that Nintendo have managed to release in the, the market. Because this is the thing, as much as this is a big push into China for Nintendo, it is not the big push in that it has been for decades trying to get its consoles in some form, even those weird IQ not knockoffs, because I think Nintendo is still involved in them, but yeah, releasing a Nintendo console without releasing a Nintendo console, there's this finding ways around the restrictions to try and get their games into China. Whether or not that that's brought them any loyalty over the years, that you know, people who are excited for the first official Nintendo yeah. launch, I don't know. Well, it's a huge market, and even if they only get you know a tiny percentage of the market, I, it could still be worth it for them. But uh, yeah, I don't know if if I think my most optimistic um, projection is just that this is sort of like establishing a beachhead. Kind of like the original Xbox comes out and it doesn't really set the world on fire, but it makes it, you know, the brand a viable option for down the road when the Xbox 360 comes out and then it can actually perform well there. So, like, that's maybe the my best case. Yeah, maybe, maybe this is uh, building up for Switch 2 or whatever comes next. I think it's interesting to see what what third parties are being supported and what what they think is going to be viable here like i'm looking at this list um like 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 the rabbits thing makes sense i think octopath traveler makes a lot of sense damon x machina um mario and sonic um but like it's it's interesting to see like hollow knight on there like that's not that's kind of surprising to me but that's like really cool um 
tools up. I have not played. I haven't even heard, I haven't heard a lot about that over here. So, well, that's that's literally just come out. That one yeah. surprised me because that that's an indie game that's literally just come out. That's that's this cool, fun kind of overcooked style co-op game yeah. where you're renovating. Oh, that's right. no, I did to, I did play to, that. I played that at um I played that at yeah. I think PAX. I think that isn't that. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's it's an interesting set of indie games. Um, well, not indie, indie and third party games kind of mixed in there. And it's, it's interesting to kind of look at that and see what they think will be popular and will maybe, you know, kind of help sell the console over there as opposed to what's not on there. A little bit closer to home. Um, it's worth noting that Nintendo Switch just had its best single week ever of sales in the US um, over Thanksgiving and Black Friday and all that. Um, Switch and Switch Lite sold a combined 830,000 units. Uh, according to Nintendo, this brings the Switch's US sales uh, for its lifetime so far up to 17.5 million units, 1.5 million more than the last reported milestone, which was 15 million back in mid-October. And globally, the Switch has sold over 41 million units. As Rob kind of pointed out in his column, it's quite funny that they obviously they they overstretched their targets last year, so they actually had to revise their forecasts for the financial year in terms of how many hardware units they would sell. And then this year it's just picked up again, like through a combination of like good software releases like Mario Maker Two and obviously Pokemon Zelda, the Switch Lite coming out, Luigi's Mansion. They they seem to be back on track. Um, to and they they're, they're impressing a lot. It's quite hilarious because I remember at the early of the year, at, at the earlier parts of the year, everybody was looking at Nintendo's lineup for this year, and they're like, "Oh, their their Switch sales, they're not going to make those new targets." Oh man, they don't have enough games coming out this year. Yeah, and <laughs> proven wrong I, once again. What's the the the, uh, the old adage? Don't bet against Nintendo unless it's a Wii U year. Which is why maybe unless it's a Wii U year. Which is why maybe look look everyone's allowed one mistake and I still maintain the Wii U is a lot better than people yeah, think it was. There was also like the GameCube and the Virtual Boy. Do not insult the, the GameCube, Game Brendan. The Don't insult the GameCube. The 3DS was great. Uh, the launch maybe not so much, but the 3DS has a great library of titles now. Yeah, but, yeah. That, that Nintendo is still supporting the 3DS. Did not did not go well. Yeah, I like the 3D. I'm I'm still got that. I never happened. And I still have my GameCube. I don't anymore. I had a GameCube. I sold it because I needed money. I then bought someone else's GameCube. I sold it because I needed money. And I'm genuinely tempted to buy another GameCube, which is ridiculous. Last big thing we want to talk about this week is fewer, bigger, better. The strategy that many, many AAA publishers uh, talked about good, what, 10 years ago? Uh, Brendan, you did this, uh, our latest 10 years ago feature, and it, it, it got out of hand in your own words. Yeah, so I went through all of our stories from December of 2009, and uh, one of them I thought was kind of interesting was um, EA's then-CEO, John Riccatello, talking uh, to investors talking about how in, in 2010 uh, the company's output would be would be a little smaller than usual um, in 2009 they had done 50 50 different games um, and a lot of those games were on various platforms so it's not like you know 50 SKUs it was actually 50 different games and he said 20, 2010 it'll probably be a little more like 40 
And then he, he said it could shrink a bit more in the years to come. 30 wouldn't shock me at some point in the future. So uh, as tends to happen with this, I was like, okay, well, how many did they release in, in 2019? Because I think it was less than 30. And it was 10. Woo! 10 games. So they have they have really kind of cut down. Like, I couldn't believe that they even released, you know, 50, 10 years ago. Uh, and then I looked at, like, you know, on, on Moby Games, which is fantastic, uh, a list of the, the games that EA had released, and I didn't recognize half of them. Some of them I remembered once I saw them, like Wii NFL Training Camp, their EA Sports Active title, or Create, which I remembered the box art of, but could not tell you a single thing about Create, the, yeah. the game itself. My Sims Sky Heroes, just... Family Game Night 3. Yeah, there were a ton of games that they just kind of like shoveled out there. And they were like that year after year after year. And then they just kind of, they did this fewer, bigger, better uh, approach. And it's it's narrowed down to, to just uh, 10 games this year. And and so I, was, I started thinking like, well, what about other, other publishers? And... Uh, Fortunately, Metacritic has, has done year-by-year year, uh, annual game publisher rankings where they, they say, here's how many games, how many distinct titles the company had. Here's what the average review score of them was. So I was like, okay, well, this is an easy way for me to like compare you know, fewer and, and better parts of it, see how, how, many, uh, you know, how many titles they released, and then are they, are they doing as well as they used to? And uh, it was it was interesting results I found. First of all, like across the board for the major publishers in 2018, all of their all of their Metacritic scores, their average Metacritic scores had improved versus uh, what they had posted in 2010, the first year that Metacritic was doing that that result. And and that's kind of encouraging, I guess. And then I looked at at where they topped out um, because that seemed a little harder to me. Like your, your Super Mario Galaxy 2 in 2010 got a 97 average Metacritic score. So there's there's not really any way that Nintendo's going to, you know, improve on that very much. And uh, so sure enough, like you look at the, the list of the, the best-reviewed games from each, each company and... Uh, and it doesn't and there's a lot more variability like electronic arts which had the, the which embraced fewer bigger better to the to the greatest extent of the publishers uh also saw the the biggest drop in review score for their best reviewed games in 2018 the best reviewed game was fifa 19 which got an 83 13 points less than 2010's mass effect 2 and if you look at the last couple of years, uh, FIFA 19 is like one of the lowest, best, you know, peak scores from a, from a publisher in that entire span. And on the other hand, Square Enix, which, uh, which had gone against the tide with the fewer, bigger, better trend, they're actually releasing more games every year now than they did 10 years ago. Uh, they they had the biggest jump in their best reviewed game score. Uh, Near Automata Become as Gods Edition got a ninety compared to Lara Croft and the Guardian of Light ten years ago, eighty five. 
So, so it's like, oh, well, that's, that's unexpected. You know, the fewer, bigger, better, if you look at that, just doesn't seem like it actually follows. Like you can do fewer and bigger, but it doesn't, doesn't mean better. So then I started looking at the other end of the scale um, and the worst games that they, that they turned out. And then the, the charts started to sort of match what we might have expected uh, with the fewer, bigger, better approach. Electronic Arts, um, their worst game in, in 2010 was Dead Space Ignition. It was a 35 rating. It was, it was like just kind of a tossed-off, spin-off puzzle game on Xbox 360. And in 2018, when they were only releasing, you know, a dozen games or so, their worst game was uh, Fee, the, the indie Xbox, or sorry, uh, EA Partners title. Yeah, the EA yeah, original. I say that's yeah. their worst game, but it got a 70, which is, is perfectly respectable. <laughs> uh, and then you look at the company that embraced, you know, did not embrace Fear Big or Better. Square Enix was actually churning out more games now. And their worst reviewed game uh, last year was was The Quiet Man, which which got <laughs> a twenty nine Metacritic average, absolutely brutal. And that chart kind of it, it looking through those those results, um, there are always going to be you know outliers here and there, but it, it sort of underscored how. Uh, fewer, bigger, better really just means like we're not actually making the better games that much better as far as, you know, Metacritic averages. And that's not the best way necessarily to, you know, quantify quality, but it's the only rely, you know, apples to apples kind of one we have right now. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're fewer, bigger, better is, is more like fewer, bigger, not as many bombs. Yeah, I definitely have memories as a kid of going to like Walmart or Best Buy or when I was a little bit older, my parents would be like in Walmart and I'd run next door to GameStop or whatever and hang out. Um, and I definitely remember there being just shelves and shelves and shelves, shelves of games that would have like, you know, EA or... I don't know, like like a big name publisher on the label somewhere, um, but would be like in the bargain bin or would be like something that I had never, ever heard of. Or there would just be like this stack of stuff marked, you know, like like $10. And it's just like this game that nobody bought and was probably probably did not review well. And there, there would just be tons and tons and tons of them. And now I, I know that at least part of this is, you know, physical not being as big a deal anymore. Like a lot of that stuff has, you know, kind of migrated to digital only. Um, but those bins don't really exist as much in those stores anymore. Or if they do, they're for much older games. Um, like yeah. the stuff that's on the shelves is the big name titles and pretty much just that. Again, like part of that is is moving away from physical. But I, I do think that at least some of that is just not churning out a whole bunch of games that are kind of eh. If you buy a game with Activision Blizzard or Electronic Arts on the box now, if it's a physical game, you can be assured of a certain level of polish, I guess. Whereas, you know, back in the day, it's like, oh, the Catwoman Halle Berry movie game <laughs> from EA. I'm sure this will yeah. be great. And no, no, not necessarily. I mean, part of it is that... Just like with that one, movie-based games aren't aren't as much of a thing anymore. Yeah, 
But licensed games in general aren't as big a thing anymore. So yeah, you go back to 2010, you, you mentioned Activision Blizzard. I believe that was in the height of that. They were doing a Bond game every year. They were doing a Marvel game every year. They were doing a Spider-Man game every year because they had all the, I think they were doing Transformers yeah. every couple of years. They had all these licensing deals. And it's like, right, we've got to get as much money out of this IP, as much use out of this IP before the deal expires. Is that the industry was so different 10 years ago. Like I'm thinking back as well, like half those titles you mentioned during the, um, the, the EA and the 50 games they released, like we obviously were in the peak of the Wii's popularity mm-hmm. and that just invited so much shovelware and so many like really rushed, cobbled together third-party mini-game collections at the attempt of cashing in on what Wii Sports and Wii Play had done. Um, but yeah, we, there, there just isn't the room in the market for that level of half assedness anymore. The thing is, God. well, it's not a an unqualified good thing. Like, yeah, the quiet man bombed, but it was trying to do something different. You know? And if you look at if you look at yeah. like Sony's recent um their their reviews because they they did not I, I thought they would be really you know high up on the publisher list because of you know their their run of first party hits like spider-man horizon zero dawn god of war that like everybody loved but it turns out that they you know if you just look at the metacritic average they're kind of a mediocre publisher a middle of the road maybe because they put out so many like vr games or all those playlink mm-hmm. games and you can look at those and be like, oh, wow, those are those are really junky games. And a lot of them didn't score very well. But they also produced, you know, like Tetris Effect or, or Astrobot Rescue Mission, which which is like the, yeah. you know, the one VR game that absolutely everyone loves. And, you know, I hear people like say, oh, well, that's the Mario 64 of VR games. So it's not like when you cut out the the bottom end of it and you stick with you know the safer options you're you're kind of closing the door on a lot of experimentation a lot of risk taking a lot of things that don't fit that you know safe conventional mold of this is what works in in triple a so yeah so but i would argue that a lot of that innovation with some outliers has kind of moved into the indie space and into again just like the digital only space like i mean i'm looking i'm looking at ea's game releases from 2010 and i would i mean and i apologize if i'm crapping on someone's favorite game here but i would argue that risk factions and uh monopoly streets and death spank thongs of virtue uh, probably none of those games were trying to do something just like deeply innovative with like genre and gameplay. Death Spank was a of game. <laughs> I, will... I don't know what this is. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's, there might be something to Death Spank. Wait, Monopoly Street though? Did you say Monopoly Street? I uh, said so, yes, Monopoly Street. Was that doing something? Is, is Sorry, like... maybe I picked like horrible examples on accident. No, no well, I, I'm. I think it's a fine example. I'm just wondering if it's like along. Does that fit in with EA's NBA Street and FIFA <laughs> Street? Uh, <laughs> hold on. Is that it's, like? In, it's in a board game. It's a board game. Extreme arcade style version of Monopoly or something. No, it's it's literally just the board game Monopoly, but. <laughs> Everything looks like you're walking up and down a street. Oh, that's disappointing. It's, Brendan, it's, it's, 
It's not. It's not three on three playing Monopoly yeah. on the bottom of a, of a, a grubby basketball court down Look, in Look, if Adelaide, EA wants to make that, I will take great. back what I just said about them. I want an NBA jam of Monopoly with an announcer that's all like, "Oh, community chest." <laughs> can I? Can I get a recording of that? Please? <laughs> Agre- agreeing with um, Rebecca, though, like, yeah, a lot of the exper- experimentation nowadays is coming from the the indie space, and like the platform holders are trying to get behind some of that. So to go back to the Sony example, like one of the PlayLink titles they released this year, where it started as a PlayLink title, I think it became just kind of standalone with a PlayLink app, was Erica, which is by uh, a UK indie called Flavorworks. And it was an attempt at kind of advancing the the kind of the interactive FMV style game. So rather than just clicking on choices as to you know, which way you want the story to go, there was a lot of kind of, you know, pulling, you know, swiping the screen to pull open drawers and, you know, moving it to open doors. And they were trying to really advance the interactions of it, but the from what I've read of the reviews, like the, the substance of what they were trying to do didn't quite work. So that only hit a 69. And nowadays, 69 is a, and I'm doing air quotes here, bad score when it comes to a publisher, when it comes to wanting to justify doing another one. So I don't know if that experiment will be followed up on. I don't know if Sony will publish another game from that. And I think that's a shame as well. Like, yeah, focusing on the big, better, safer hits, um, it's, it's a shame. It was an interesting, it was interesting you published this this week because um, I recently went to a, a panel session by a company called Media Research. They do analysis across all the different entertainment industries um, as to the competition between them. Um, they do a lot of work on they, they refer to the, the the peak attention economy so the time in which there is no there's no area of free time in a consumer's daily life where you can try and get them with your entertainment product because everyone has a phone everyone is like using you know consuming entertainment on the loo on the commute uh, on you know waiting for a bus like there is no moment where someone is not potentially engaging with your product or your service. We've now gone beyond that in that we are still we're in what they refer to as the post-peak attention economy. In that there is now not only there's so little time, but there is far too much content. You just look at um, streaming services alone, for example. You've obviously people using Spotify, Apple Music, uh, Amazon Music, stuff like that. But then you've got Netflix, Hulu, um, HBO Max, Disney Plus, Apple TV Plus. Like there's more coming out next year. This Stadia's just launched. Xbox Game Pass is going to have X Cloud. That's launching next year. PlayStation Now is already out. That's just streaming alone. And he was, they were talking about how exhaustive it all is and how it's got to the point where if you sit down with Netflix for two hours, you do not sit down and watch a two-hour film anymore. You spend 10 minutes browsing trying to choose what film because there is so much damn content that you end up watching an hour and 50. So consumers are losing entertainment value in their time or some such thing but he concluded with saying like it's going to be about quality over quantity not because that's just a buzzword that everyone says to kind of promise they're not hashing stuff out because but because literally everyone has already got quantity there is no room for any more quantity and when he was saying that all i remembered was the fewer bigger better stance from 10 years ago and then you then you put up your uh, your feature that is all we've got time for this week. But before we go, a little kind of a plug for a few things we do on the site. Obviously, it's December and it's the year end. So we have various uh, year end roundup pieces. Uh, at the moment, we've started with our people of the year selection. So these are a series of essays on people that have made outstanding contributions to the industry either this year or they've done something significant this year that kind of culminates or that kind of, you know, 
represents everything they've been doing. Um, so far, we've covered uh, Humble Bundle founders Jeffrey Rosen and Je- uh, John Graham. We've done the Playing for the Planet Alliance. We've done Remedy Entertainment. We've done Sonic Fox and Blitzchung. We've done Telling Lies developer Sam Barlow. There's going to be more going up every day next week. I say next week. By the time you're listening to it, it's this week. So every day this week. And we're going to start rolling out um, articles on particular trends or particular areas of interest that have, have, have occurred over the over the past year. Um, I mean, guys, do you have anything you kind of want to tease that's coming out? I wrote about Yu Suzuki for people of the year. That's not so much a tease as a, you know. That's not so much a tease. That is a, that should, that should be on the site the day this episode yeah. goes live. So that's a, go read it now. Also, like, um, I, I, in the spirit of um, completely undermining this as a tease, it's basically just because Shenmue 3 came out. Like, that's it. That's the, yeah. <laughs> really, you don't need anything else. That game, I a significant chunk of my adult life has been spent thinking that game will never come out. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of the new Duke it's Nukem a- Forever, Team Fortress Two, kind of vaporware sort of thing. That like, oh my gosh, that that actually came out. And not only that, it came out and people actually loved it. Like it's it's Shenmue. It's what they wanted. Basically, it's an article about how you were wrong all those years. And what's our next vaporware? Like now that Shenmue Three has finally arrived, I mean, Star Citizen obviously that's never going to come out. I know it's sort of playable, but this is the thing: you don't get vaporware anymore, do you? You just have ever you know eternal early access. Half Life Three, but that's only for a little while longer. Half Life Three, I guess, in the Valley of the Gods after yeah, this week. Yeah. Oh. yeah that's true that's such a shame about that game um, speaking of um, good games that everyone loves though we will also be doing our games of the year and I believe the plan is to write why I love style pieces um, for anyone not familiar Brendan obviously curates this excellent series of why I love which is um, developers and industry professionals explaining why they enjoy their, their favourite titles not in a oh my god this is so cool kind of way but in a general professional like analytical like this is what works so well. This is why this is a masterpiece. We're going to attempt that ourselves. Um, and we are also going to discuss our game for the year on the next episode of the podcast. So this is the penultimate show of this year. We'll have one more episode for you next Monday. where We will talk about our favorite games of the year. You probably guessed some of our choices, but I think we've got an interesting mix this year. Um, so until then, you can check out our previous episodes on all good podcasting platforms of your choice. Uh, why not subscribe so you get all episodes automatically and you can find your daily dose of news, analysis and insight into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. Chest.